Good morning, everyone. As um, Al says, if you've not met me before, my name is Jack, and nope, we are stable. Um, and I um, help lead one of the small groups here at King's Church. Got all kinds of things on here. What's going on? There we go. Don't know what that is. But anyway. So I lead one of the small groups here at King's Church, and before we get into uh, this story on Advent, really I want to make a confession straight off the bat. And the confession is this, I love Christmas. It is by far my favourite time of the year. I love the build-up to Christmas, I love those Advent calendars that Anne was talking about, a bit of chocolate for breakfast every morning, it's fantastic. I love time with family and friends, I love the food, I love the films. I am like a little child when it comes to Christmas. And it was even the point uh, where earlier this week I was sort of uh, chatting with one of my colleagues at work and he goes to me, "Um, what, what did you do last night then? And I went, I watched the first Christmas film of the season for me. And he was like, oh my word, you're one of them. Now, I don't know quite what he meant by one of them, but if he means that this guy loves Christmas, he's right. I absolutely love it. I love everything from the treats right the way through to the tradition. It is brilliant. But I think we all have to confess something here. It is a bit weird. I mean, for instance, it is the only time of the year that we'll go out into the woods, chop down a perfectly happy tree, drag it indoors, cover it in fairy lights and decorations. Brilliant, but weird. It is the only time of the year where we get an oversized sock that we will never, ever wear and put it out on one night of the year and expect it to be filled with presents. Brilliant, but weird. It is the only time of the year we encourage our children to invite a man in a crazy red suit to come down the chimney, enter into their bedrooms and leave presents for them. Brilliant in many ways, but incredibly weird. And actually, I think as we look at the Christmas story, as we're looking at the build-up to it in Advent, we find that actually, although the story is brilliant, in many places, we spot some things that at first glance, they seem weird. I mean... The story we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 1, there's an angel, there's a virgin who's going to give birth. It just seems a bit weird. And today, maybe you're visiting this morning, maybe you're here to to come and see Natasha get baptized, and you're looking around and you're going, actually, Christianity, at first glance, it looks weird. Jack, you might think it's brilliant, and I do, but it is weird. Exhibit A, a giant box of water. What on earth is that all about? Weird. Well, this morning, as I continue our series in Advent, at looking at, um, at this passage in Luke chapter 1, uh, we're going to see this woman, Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. And as we go through this, I want to look at some of this stuff which at first looks weird. Now, I'm not going to answer the questions about trees or giant socks or Father Christmas, but I will look at this bit in Luke and we will find out what the true reason for the season is. And we'll see that this virgin's response to this angel's message is actually going to give us some insight into what Natasha is doing this morning in that box of water. No, she's not giving birth. But it should inspire us. You like that one? That was a bit weird. But but it should inspire us to have a Merry Christmas. I'll, just let, I'll say that one again because I work really hard on that. I'll just let it sink in. We're looking at the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So we're going to end up having a Merry Christmas. Move the slide on to the next one. Read the title. Let's have a Merry Christmas. Okay? 
Very good. Thank you. I want, that's the response I wanted. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 26. So it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, what kind of greeting is this? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left. I'm just going to pray. Father, we want to use this time. We want to hear what you're speaking to us. Would you use it and will you speak to us? And would you reveal your will for us? We ask this in your name. Amen. So the first thing we see in this passage is that there is an angel from God who is providing Mary with a message for her. And this message has been promised for many, many, many years. If you were here just a couple of weeks ago, Al kicked off our Advent series and he was looking at an Old Testament book of Isaiah. And and in the Old Testament, there are these prophets who who they knew that there was this saviour coming. They knew that God was going to do something to help his people. They knew God was going to save the world somehow through someone. But here, in this passage of Luke's gospel, Mary is the first person to get the name Jesus used for him. She's the first person to get this message from God that salvation is coming into this world and it's coming through a baby who's going to be born in Bethlehem and his name is Jesus. He is the Lord descending into time and space, coming to save us. And Mary hears this message. This is the first person that God has provided this information to. And it's this little girl in first century Israel, probably around about the age of 15, an unwed teenager. She receives this message. And the way that she responds to this message is going to show us I think what a real Christian is. It's going to help us understand if we here this morning are Christians or not. And it will give us some insight into what Natasha is doing today by getting baptized. So this message from God, there are three amazing things that we're going to see that the angel states as this message. The first thing is that this child will live forever. The second is that this child is God himself. And the third thing is that this child, through this child, God has become vulnerable. So the first thing, this child will live forever. It's seen in verse 33. Um, 
And this is where the angel says to Mary, now imagine that you are this woman hearing this, this being said to her. Imagine this was you hearing this. That the baby that will be born to you will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And then it kind of goes on, sort of the angel repeats himself. And it's like he realizes this is just a mental statement that she's not going to take this in. So it's like the angel leans down and goes, read my lips. His kingdom will never end. This child will go on and on and reign over God's people forever. And then the second thing, that this child isn't just a person who has endless life. This isn't just a child that's going to go on and on and on. This is God himself. Because when Mary hears, she comes back at the angel. She says, how will this be? And she starts asking a lot of questions, which we'll look at in just a moment. But Mary says, how will this be? I'm not even married yet. (laughs) What do you mean I'm about to become pregnant? I've never even been with a man. And the angel's response is, oh, no, no, no. It's not what you think, Mary. It's not what you think. The angel says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to empower you in such a way that this baby in your womb isn't just a holy person. He isn't just going to be a nice guy. He's not just going to be a spiritual guru and teacher pointing people the way to God. No, this is different. This is the holiness of God himself coming upon you. This isn't just the holy guy, Mary. This is the holy one himself taking human nature And looking at verse 31 and 32, the angel uses the term for him as the son of the most high. The most high. It's used deliberately. This is the most high who's become a child. And the third thing that the angel says is that in God's message, God himself through this child has become vulnerable. And this is a principle we all know. If you want to get to know someone, you share more and more about yourself, you become vulnerable. You don't do it the first time you meet because you start telling everyone everything about yourself and all sort of how crazy you are. Everyone goes, mental, and walks away and doesn't want to get to know you. But as you get to know someone, as you spend time with them, you share and you become vulnerable. And as you gain more intimacy, you become more vulnerable with someone. And you can't really do it any other way. Intimacy doesn't happen unless you become vulnerable with someone. You can't get into that true friendship or that relationship with someone or that marriage with someone without binding your heart to that other person to the point where they could just break it if they wanted to. There isn't really a way to enter into a true personal relationship with someone without making yourself vulnerable. And Christianity is the only religion which says God has done this. See, God doesn't just love us in an abstract, distant, far-off way. He's not just like the life force of love or something up in the sky. Because if God was a big person in the sky who loves us, how would that make him vulnerable? Well, he isn't. He's not vulnerable like that. But if Christmas is true... If what we're looking at here isn't just a story, but it's actually true, that the God of the Bible is the only one of all the major religions who became vulnerable himself. 
the God of Christianity became truly vulnerable because he became a baby. And you can't get more vulnerable than that. God put himself into such a position that we could harm him. He became fragile. He became someone who could be overpowered, tortured, killed. You know what? That's what happened. Why? Because he wanted us. He came for us. He wanted to pay for our sins, the wrong things that we've thought and done and said. He wanted to pay for those so that we could come to know God without any barriers. And that's what he did. This is the message to Mary. This is the message of Christmas. This is that there is a child who will be born. He won't just live forever, but he is God himself who has come and become so vulnerable that he will die in your place to save you, to save you from your sins that are separating you from God. And he will rise from the dead and allow you to connect back to God himself. Therefore, what we've got here is we've got a faith where the founder of it isn't just a holy man. He is God himself. He isn't just a prophet. He's God himself. And if this is true, then you can't just respect, Christ, respect Jesus, tip your hat to Christmas, and sort of go, it's all a bit nice and it's good to think about. Either he is who he said he was. He is who the Bible says he is. And if that is the case, then the only response is to, is to set aside your life, put God at the center of it, and say, I will worship you with everything I have. But if he's not who he says he is, if he's not who the Bible says, then it, it's all a bunch of lies and it can be totally rejected. You can't just like Jesus. You can't just respect him and tip your hat to Christmas. And so in the way the Bible says that the founder of Christianity He's to be seen higher than the founder of any other religion at all. And yet, on the other hand, the Bible says that the God of Christianity has become lower than any other religion could ever think God could possibly be. And that's the Christmas story. And if you really take this in, if you really take the truth that God himself has become that vulnerable, that he stripped himself of all his honor and glory and power, that he became so vulnerable out of love for us, if you take that in, that it isn't just a Christmas story or a concept, but he's actually done that for you, and you see what kind of love that is, then it will make you have the ability to be vulnerable with other people. Do you know why? It's like a simple equation, really. If you get affirmed in a major way over here, then you can take some minor criticism over here. If you grasp the concept that God has done this, that the divine love being shown in Jesus is so amazing that any other um, thing you get in is minor in comparison. And so if you really understand this divine love being shown at Christmas, by God becoming vulnerable to you, you'll be so overwhelmed in love that when you feel vulnerable to other people, you can deal with it. And not only that, but when you suffer, when you feel like you've become limited in some kind of way, that you fall short, when you realize how fragile we are on this earth, when you, when you realize how much evil, suffering, and difficulty there is just in life as human beings, then you'll have a resource that can help you and see beyond it. 
There's an author uh, called Dorothy Sayers who put it like this. She says, the incarnation, that's God becoming a man. That whatever reason God chose to let us be limited um, to suffer, be objected, subjected to sorrows and death, we now know that he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can ask nothing from us that he's not exacted upon himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience from trivial irritations of family life and to the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair and death. He was born into poverty and he died in disgrace and he suffered pain for us all. And yet he thought it all worth his while. So that's the message of God. That God gave to Mary and is giving to us. But how did Mary receive it? How did she respond in faith? And there are two things that we will look at that I think um, we can look at and see if they are in ourselves. To see if we've responded to this message in that same way. And the two things are this. First of all, there's careful questioning. And secondly, there's complete surrender. There's careful questioning and complete surrender. So careful questioning. By this, um, I mean, well, because maybe you're here and you're thinking, ah, religious people, they just don't ask questions. Maybe you're, you're thinking that this morning. You're visiting and you're looking around and you're going, I'm kind of a skeptical person. I like to ask lots of questions. But these Christians here, they just seem to believe whatever's said to them. That they've stopped questioning anything. Maybe you think Christians have to just switch off their minds to become Christians. But that's not what Mary did. It doesn't say that the angel showed up and Mary went, Oh, an angel, that's just lovely. I've heard about these. Tell me more. Ah, I really like them. No. It says in verse 29 that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, I kind of think that's kind of a weird witness, but wonder what kind of, it was an angelic greeting, obviously. I've just seen that it said an angel popped up. But actually, the term in the, in the Bible, in the original language, it's an accounting term. It means to take an audit. It means try and be rational and think things through, count things up, try and weigh things to see what's, what's happening here. It means that when the angel showed up, immediately Mary started to ask questions. Am I really seeing an angel? Is this a hallucination? What's happening here? Mary responds in faith eventually. But it's a whole person experience. It involves her brain. It's not just intuition, but it's thought. It's not just heart, but it's her head. She's thinking and thinking and she's asking all kinds of questions. How can this be? What are you talking about? She has some healthy doubts in there. She's asking these kind of questions, and I think it's important um, for, for a few reasons. One of which, we can often look at ourselves and go, hey, we're in 2016, we're about to enter into 2017, we've moved on from them. People back then in the first century, they were just a, a bit simple, really, weren't they? They had all kinds of superstitions. But you know what? People back then, they had similar IQs to what we have now. They could think things through. They knew what was real and what, was, what wasn't. And so, in fact... When Mary sees this angel, she responds in exactly the same way that I think you would respond if an angel showed up and started talking to you. See, in our Western world, you and I, we've, we've kind of been trained to, to not believe in anything that's supernatural 
at all, full stop. Just, just can't be. Unless we can empirically prove something, it doesn't happen. But Mary, as a first century Jew, she had been conditioned and trained to believe that there is no possibility that God could ever become a man. At all. The barriers that she had, the barriers that she faced are every bit as big as the barriers that we face. And yet a combination of evidence and experience shattered those barriers and she believed. And that's the same way it works now for every Christian. It's the same way it worked for Natasha. And we'll get to hear her story in a bit. But it's an experience and it's evidence that shatters those barriers. But there's something else that I think we should see. Because earlier in Luke chapter 1, there's a story about this guy called Zachariah. And he was old, his wife was old, um, but then, and they were childless. But then an angel comes to them. And an angel appears to Zachariah and he goes, Hey man, you're old, your wife Elizabeth's old, but you know what? You're going to have a son. And he'll become a great prophet for God called John the Baptist. Boom, miracle, you're welcome. And yet, Zachariah responds by asking a whole load of questions. He's doubtful. How can this be? What are you on about? And yet, the angel responds to Zachariah by going, what? What? How dare you ask those questions? Why are you doubting? I'm going to strike you mute. You're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. And then, an angel turns up and speaks to Mary and says, hey Mary, you're going to have a child. And she starts questioning and having a whole load of doubts and asking things and she wants to know about this and that. And then the angel blesses her and moves on. Like, what is that all about? What happened there? Well, if you're like me, you read Luke chapter 1 and you go, well, I guess Zachariah got grumpy, the angel, and that Mary got happy, the angel. It's like the seven dwarves or something. But um, it's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. The Bible sees that there is a difference in the way that these people doubt. There's like a nuance to it. And generally, in our Western society, spiritual doubt is considered good. That we should doubt whether angels exist. We should doubt whether God exists. We should doubt all kinds of things. And that's considered good. All smart people doubt. But on the other hand, there's like religious circles, traditional churches, where uh, if you went into them, doubt is considered all bad. And actually, if you turned up, maybe you had this experience as in, in a youth group, that actually you kind of go, I kind of doubt this and that. And they kind of go, don't doubt. I'd strike you mute if I could. How dare you doubt? But the contrast is that the Bible doesn't see all doubt as good or all doubt as bad. The Bible is showing us that there's a kind of doubt that's the sign of a closed-off mind. But there's a kind of doubt that's the sign of an open mind. That there's a kind of doubt that wants answers. And there's a kind of doubt that definitely doesn't want answers. There's a kind of doubt that really shows that this person is like Mary, who's open to the truth, that's willing to get out of the driver's seat of their life if they can be shown that what they thought was true is other than what they originally thought. And there's the kind of doubt which Zachariah seems to have had that is using all of the questions, all of the doubts and all of the arguments as a way of trying to say, I'm staying in the driver's seat of my life and I'm going to keep my mind closed because I don't want this. What kind of doubt do you have? (laughs) 
quite a jazzy little tune. But what kind of doubt do you have? Is it careful questioning or is it closed off questioning like Zachariah? But after Mary's careful questioning, she finally gets to a place of complete surrender. And this is where we're going to finish with Mary's great words. With, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Complete surrender, but it's not blind surrender that Mary has. Mary knows what she's getting into. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She knows what's going on. She's about to have a, a, have a child, and yet she's pledged to be married to Joseph. She's a virgin. If Joseph might leave her. He might go. But even if Joseph decides to stay with her, people can add it up. They had calendars back then. They can look at it and they can sit around and go, hmm, married on that date, baby on that date. Hmm, doesn't add up. And, and that's kind of it. She's in a traditional paternal society in a small community where she would always be labelled as the mother of an illegitimate child. She knew that the whole community would think that she either had sex with Joseph before they were married or, which was totally, totally against the culture back then, or she had been unfaithful to her fiancé. She knew that Jesus would always be labelled with, with the label illegitimate, that she would be the mother of this illegitimate child. And yet her response is, Okay, Mary, you'll have a whole life labelled with disgrace and shame. I know, I'm the Lord's servant. I'll take it. It's complete surrender. And the, and the angel says to Mary, hey, you'll have this child and you're going to call his name Jesus. And there's something else going on there straight away. That actually, even if the angel hadn't said any of the other things, he said loads Loads of things, but Mary knew that something was going on here. Because the angel said this, because parents always have the right to name their child. Why? Well, because they're in charge. They're in charge of them. You're, you name your child. You set the standard for your child. You're the authority over your child. You're the mother. You're the father. You have the right to name your child. But the angel is going, uh-uh, uh, not this child, Mary. If this person is going to come into your life, then he's in charge. You don't name him, he names you. You don't call the shots for him, he calls the shots for you. And she responds, may your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, she knows that she's taking her hands off the steering wheel to her life. She knows that if this person is going to come into my life, then I have to humble myself and say, God, Yes, I'm, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong things. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I need your salvation. Yes, I'm limited. I don't know how I should live my life or where I'm going. But wherever you take me, I'm there. I take my hands off my life. And it's like the story that years and years and years before Mary, God speaks to this guy, Abraham. And he says, Abraham... I want to bring salvation to God's people through you and your body and your family. Abraham says, fine. What do you want me to do? Here I am, Lord. He says, go. Leave everything that you know, all the security that you have, everything you know, go out into that wilderness. And he goes, okay, but where do you want me to go? Where am I heading? And God goes, I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that Abraham, he went out not knowing where he was going. God said to Abraham, get out, 
And Abraham got out and he didn't know where to. And it's exactly the same with Mary here. Obey me, follow me, submit to me. And she humbles herself and she went out not knowing where it would end up. And anybody who wants to become a Christian basically has to do the same thing. Not, oh, I'm going to church now every now and again when I can. It's not, I'm going to try and follow some set of rules that I should try and adhere my life to. It's not that occasionally I'll hear a message and just become inspired. No, it's you take your hands off your life. You say, if you really are the saviour, if you really are God who was born as a child, who, who came to save us, then I take my hands off my life. And I'm going to follow you, even though I don't quite know where I'm going or where I'll end up. But wherever you bring me or wherever you take me, that will be all right with me. This is what Mary is saying in the build-up to the first Christmas. This is what Natasha has already done <coughs> And that's what she's going to be demonstrating this morning in this giant tank of water with getting baptized. She's representing that she's trusting God, that he's dealt with her sins. And part of the water is that she's being wa- representing that she has been washed clean from all the things that she's done wrong, thought, said or done. But it's also that she's actually dying to her old way of life before God and being raised to a new life where she is now connected with God and has him at the center and says, I've taken my hands off my life. It's been totally given to you. I'm going to follow you even though I don't quite know where I'm going. But wherever you take me, that's fine by me. That's what's represented in baptism. And if you're a Christian, that's what you've done. That's what you continue to do. Trust God with all of your life. And this Christmas, that's what we're remembering. Our Savior, who lives and still lives, because he's conquered the grave, that he's paid for our sin, the one who is God, who humbled himself, became so vulnerable that he died for us and that he rose again to new life so that we can know him and live life and life to the full. And if you're here and you, you didn't know that, that maybe this is your first time to church, I want to encourage you, investigate this. Ask some careful questions. Consider if this is true, because if it is, then it changes everything, and it demands everything from you. I'm just going to pray. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for this true story of Christmas, that you, God, became a child, so that we can be connected to God, that you are the Lord who saves, that you had a plan to save us from ourselves, to bring us back into connection with you. And I just pray that this Christmas, we would keep that at the focus of our minds, that we would praise you and worship you, Jesus, the one who has saved us, the one who has brought us into God's presence. In your name, amen.